Hello and welcome to episode 94 of Command Space on 5x5. My name is Mike Hurley and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Brent Simmons. Hi Brent. Hey Mike, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks for being here today. Oh, thank you. So Brent, what do you like to be known for? Uh, I like to be known for my app Vesper. I like to be known for a whole bunch of other things besides that, but uh, currently that's that's my project. That's my main thing. So. That's your thing. Yep. So we're going to talk about Vesper, but before we get to that point, I have a bunch of things that I want to talk to you about that I think may have hopefully led to, to that path, and we'll see if we can try and understand how you got to, to Vesper. So you are a developer by trade. Um, how did you get started in development and why? That's a good question. Well, let's see. My my parents were both programmers back in the 70s. Um, and they bought an Apple II Plus and brought it home and taught me how to do programming. And it turned out I, I loved it. I loved some other things too, but programming was programming was cool. I set it aside for a little bit when I went to went to college. And then after college I had a, a succession of crappy jobs like bus boy and I uh, worked at Goodwill for a while as a book pricer. Uh, worked as an assistant to the Christmas buyer at a local home and hardware chain. Yeah, stuff like that. And then I thought, you know, I really enjoy that programming thing. And I bet I could just work at home and write software and make money. How about I try that? So you, that must you, have been 94 or so. And so I did, and it worked. So you decided not to be a professional Chris, assistant Christmas buyer. Yeah, for the exactly. rest of your life. Was that just buying the extra goods that were at Christmas for for the store? Yeah, so it's um, uh, things like wrapping paper and tree decorations, and you know all those kinds of things. I'm going to assume what's, that what's, this was like in the summer or something. Like yeah, that. so I was about to say it's crazy because you know you're really doing all this work like in May and June and everything. Yeah, there's like on that thread. There's a in my in my day job my marketing job is a company that I work for that's a big retail chain in the UK mm-hmm. and we were going into their offices in March and there are christmas trees everywhere yeah it was right, so, so peculiar uh-huh. <laughs> really really weird so what languages did you start development in what what, what where where did you get started let's see well the earliest thing on my old apple 2 plus was basic and then 6502 assembler uh, and then after that I just kind of set things aside for a little while. When I came back to it, it was uh, two languages, C and UserTalk, which was the scripting language in Userland Frontier, which was um, a scripting system that I uh, I loved and, and used a ton of in the mid-90s and eventually went to work for that, for that company. And what was your first um, major project? Uh, the- Depends on how you define it. I suppose, let's see, I, I released some small things as an indie in the mid-90s that didn't sell well at all. Uh, and some of the things didn't actually sell even one copy. Huh. Were they on the Mac? Uh, uh, yep, they were Mac. They were plugins for Webstar, which was uh, the big HTTP server for Macs back in those days. Uh, so those c- probably couldn't be described as major. I think the re- really the first big thing I did was... Uh, Eventually, I became lead developer on a blogging system called Manila when I was working at Userland. And it was one of the very early blogging things. It was before movable type, came out around the same time as Blogger. And uh, we had some, had like a free create your own blog service. And I think we had some six digit number of blogs that were created. Uh, They don't exist anymore, but. Some bloggers that you've heard of got their start there. People like Joel Spolsky or uh, Daily Coast, uh, Robert Scoville, uh, and, and me. Uh, I think we're going to come back to that later on. Um, at what point in time did you see um, development as a career, and when did independent development become a viable option for you? Uh, so it was the mid-'90s when I decided, well, I'm going to do this, because if this doesn't work, I don't know what the hell is going to work. <laughs> And um, so it was going to be my career no matter what once I'd made that decision. And so my wife had a job. So independent development was kind of viable if we were just, you know, somewhat frugal with our money. I didn't actually have to make any money. And we sold healthcare and all that, that kind of stuff. But I figured it would be nice to make money. And eventually I figured that out. So it's been some time then that you've been doing this stuff. Yeah. 
Now, wouldn't would it be fair to say that um, Net Newswire was your your biggest project? Like, sorry, your first project, not your biggest, your, your first sort of big project. Uh, sure. After after the Useland work, uh, you know, and that stuff was was really popular for its day. Just kind of forgotten now. Net Newswire though was a, was a huge giant smash hit. I had no idea uh, that it was going to be like that. I, I thought it would do well. I thought it'd be successful, but it was I was way beyond my dreams. It was it was fantastic. That was that was a giant thing. And yeah, and I think that's probably when. Most people who've heard of me, that's how they've heard of me from NetNewsWire. So considering this was relatively early on um, in, in sort of your indie career, um, mm-hmm. do, did you do your own design work for NetNewsWire? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I did for 1.0 especially. Uh, then for 2.0, uh, Brian Bell made the toolbar icons, uh, and he had made the app icon also for 1.0. Uh, but the rest of the app design was always all me. Uh, at one point, John Hicks made some icons for it as well. And I think uh, Robert Anderson made some icons for another version. So I, I usually had designers doing the actual icons. But the, but the rest you, was me. The UI stuff was all you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, did that continue for your other projects? Let's see. For Mars Edit, uh, the UI was all mine. And Brian Bell did the icons. Uh, Brian Bell, uh, fantastic designer. He's 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 just wonderful. Uh, but yeah, the Mars Edit UI was mine. And then, let's see, what did I work on after that? A thing called Tap Links that probably no one heard of, and it doesn't really have much UI. Uh, then Glassboard, and that was designed by me also. Vesper, however, is not designed by me. No, which is wonderful. Mm. <laughs> so, do you enjoy it, or do you, is it something like you just would do the design because it needed to have a UI design, but it wasn't necessarily something you took pleasure in? Oh, I take a lot of pleasure in it. I, uh, I'm, I'm not known as as a designer, uh, but I have designed some apps that have done really, really well, and I enjoyed doing the design. I still do, um, uh, even though technically I'm not the designer of Vesper. Uh, I still have input into it, of course. Um, you know, I work, Dave and John do most of the work, but I, you know, help out a bit with that. Usually just telling them when they've got it all wrong. <laughs> or saying, no, it's actually not possible for this to be done. Well, there is that too. <laughs> nice try, guys. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, and if if I have a, a flaw, it's that I, I may tend toward, um, uh, toward a, a simpler design, simpler in the sense that, you know, this is how the stock stuff works. This and... It's good to use that only because that's what users expect. Anything else, and they're going to go, hey, what? What just happened? I don't understand this. Uh, an example in Vesper is the transition from the uh, timeline to a detail view, to, to an actual note. Uh, I had said, let's just use a standard navigation controller and have it you know, slide over from the right, just like everything else. And John and Dave were adamant, no, we should do some cool custom you know, animation transition and everything. And I was worried that it was just going to be too strange for people. Uh, but Dave and John were right. Uh, and I think it's okay that, you know, of the three of us, there is at least one conservative in the group when it comes to UI. And that's my role. I guess if there wasn't, then you may lose too much time some, with some things. Yeah, sure. Where did the idea or desire to build Net Newswire come from? Uh, when I was at Userland, um, uh, RSS was really just gaining steam. Um, Dave Weiner was uh, the CEO of Userland, and he was very much into RSS. And he had written an RSS reader uh, that was part of the company's product called Radio Userland. And the RSS reader, to me, seemed to have the worst of two worlds. So it was browser-based, but the app actually ran on your desktop. So it was a desktop app with a browser-based UI. And you would think if you're going browser-based, you want, um, you want a, a server up, up in the cloud somewhere, right? Yeah. Uh, but no, it's, it's you know. <laughs> all sounds the very weird. <laughs> yeah, all the disadvantages of, a, of desktop combined with the disadvantages of a browser-based UI. But I was addicted to RSS, and I thought, this is great. How come, how come the world isn't using RSS? This is, this is really fantastic. So... You know, the Mac OS X was fairly new, and I'm like, wow, Cocoa seems really cool. Maybe I should uh, 
you know, do an easy little cocoa project that's an RSS reader. That would be that would be fun. And it was fun. And it turned out a whole lot of other people thought it was pretty cool too. How long were you working on the project for in total? For NetNewsWire? Yeah. Uh, let's see. I started in 2002 and worked on it for nine years. What were the main struggles with building an RSS app? Like I can imagine that like from doing podcasts, which is, you know, RSS based, that there are a bunch of really strange edge cases that are created by people like me making really mm-hmm. weird RSS feeds and that you have to try and combat them to, to make the product work. Yeah, there, there, there certainly was a, there was a lot of that. Um, <laughs> it was, yeah, there were times when it, I just like, I just couldn't believe, you know, years would go by and, and still I would find that there were new ways that people found to script their feeds. It's really not that hard, but uh, e- even just outputting valid XML turned out to be difficult for a lot of people. And I think, cause you know, it's a lot of amateurs and semi-professionals writing scripts and yeah, it looks right. Okay. Ship it. And you know, then it's up to me to figure out what to do with that mess. But that wasn't the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge was always syncing. Syncing is, um, Syncing is just a difficult problem, no matter no matter what domain we're talking about. And with RSS, it was a, it was a p- pretty darn big problem, well, especially because in those days, you know, yeah. these days we have, we, we can write stuff that runs on the cloud and do so pretty economically and pretty easily. In 2005, that, that was pretty expensive, both for development and to actually run services. So what did NetNewsWire sync with? Let's see. I tried a whole bunch of things over the years. Uh, I think the first thing was blog lines. And the syncing there was uh, just terrible. So the way it worked is if you pulled the feed from blog lines, blog lines would then mark all those items as red. Just as simple as that. And yeah, nobody liked that. That was, that was a terrible method of syncing. Also did a thing that was file system based. So it could upload via FTP if you put in your FTP credentials, or uh, to your .Mac storage account. And that didn't work very well. Um, and that taught me a lesson that file-based syncing is really, really difficult. It's way better to have some kind of, um, some kind of code running up in the cloud, some kind of smarts that can, that can handle stuff. Because file-based syncing meant a lot of bandwidth and a lot of conflicts and didn't handle things like deletions very well, that kind of stuff. Uh, let's see. Then I sold that newswire to NewsGator and went to work for them because they had a syncing platform. And the one thing they didn't have was a Mac app. And I thought, wow, great. My syncing problems are solved because, you know, here's this company, uh, that's, you know, built an entire company around RSS syncing. So synced with that for a number of years. Then around 2010 or so, I forget. NewsGator decided to turn off their RSS syncing because they were doing other things. So that left only Google Reader. That was the last thing uh, left to sync with. Really the only thing available in the world at that time. And Google Reader didn't have a documented syncing API, and and the the API wasn't great. It was just kind of what we figured out we could do. And it didn't work all that well, unfortunately. Uh, But when I... Then, then, Net, then NewsGator sold NetNewsWire to Black Pixel, and at that point, it was still syncing with Google Reader. And now Google Reader's gone too, so NetNewsWire doesn't sync with anything for the first time since two thousand four or something. What are your thoughts on the influx of RSS services since Google Reader? Do you have a favorite? Uh, I don't have a favorite. I'm actually using the NetNewsWire four beta on my Mac, which doesn't do any syncing. Uh, and that's fine because I'm not that mobile a person. I'm actually in front of my computers pretty much all the time. Um, so I, I haven't really checked any of them out. Uh, it seems to me from looking at statistics that Feedly is the runaway favorite, though. Um, but I can't tell you if that's better or worse than any of the others. I'm really happy, though, to see uh, a renaissance in RSS services now that Google Reader has gone. It's a really good thing. What was the process like for you when it came to to selling that newswire? Like, did you 
want to sell the app or did just the, the opportunity in Newsgate to come up and then the app was part of the deal? Uh, it wasn't that I wanted to get rid of the app. I, I certainly wanted to keep working on it. Uh, but the, the deal with Newsgator made sense, partly because, um, well, you know, they would take care of me um, in a lot of nice ways that included money. Um, but the main thing is my readers were clamoring, or my users were clamoring for syncing. And in those days, I, you know, there was no way I could have provided high-quality syncing myself. I either needed to hire people and I really didn't want to go down that road. Uh, or I needed to join forces with a company that had something. And Newsgator had something. So it was it was really the only option. Was this the first app that you that you sold that you'd worked on? Or had you like were you working on other apps at the same time as NetNewsWire? Uh I did start working on Mars Edit while I was working on NetNewsWire. Um, the blog, Mars Edit's a blog editor, and in NetNewsWire 1.0, um, there was a blog editor included. <laughs> so when I went to ship NetNewsWire 2.0, I split out the blog editor into a separate app, and that became Mars Edit. Do you still use RSS as much these days? Oh, yeah, every day, absolutely. So you're not one of these people that's moved to Twitter instead? Well, I use Twitter too, but it's very different things. Yeah. Is there one thing or maybe a few things that jumped to mind that you would say that you learned from building NetNewsWire that helped you in all of your later projects? Can you think of anything key that occurred or just a, a specific lesson of some sort that that mm-hmm. this project gave? Well, one one big lesson is is about uh about not shipping bugs. And that is, you may have a bug that you think, well, this is hardly ever going to get hit. Uh, but if you have 100,000 users, that bug's going to get hit all the, all the time. You know, not by any one individual, but somebody's going to run across that on a daily basis. So even highly, highly improbable bugs are going to result in a ton of support uh, because you're going to get that, you know, that problem reported to you all the time. And... So the the lesson there was, um, you should write your code as if as if no bugs are permitted. Even the wildly improbable bugs are you know not allowed, uh, because you may have a hundred thousand users or a million or who knows how many, and people are going to hit those bugs. How has that mindset changed your QA process? Uh, it's it's certainly made me a better coder because I have. I have worked really, really hard to figure out how to make apps that never crash, that um, are that are as free of bugs as possible. Um, I don't know if it's changed how I test stuff. I certainly do automated testing to a certain extent that I and I didn't before, but I think I probably would anyway. I don't know. I think it's probably just changed me more as a coder than as a tester. That said, though, with Vesper, we have Nick Arnott doing QA. He's he's fantastic. He finds everything. <laughs> he's amazing. He's like a detective. Yeah, he really is. He lo- he he loves it. I I think he I think he just wants to torture me. <laughs> Why did you want to put a blog editor in NetNewsWire? Well, so the the things kind of go together in a way, right? Because RSS, especially in those days, was very much about reading blogs. And the people who read read blogs also tended to write blogs uh, back in 2002. And the, the only model I had had to go on at that point was, uh, I mentioned Radio Userland. And that was an RSS reader and a blog editor and blog generator all wrapped up into one. Uh, and I thought, well, to be competitive... Uh, I probably need to have a blog editor inside my RSS reader. Because, you know, what you're doing is you're reading reading through, reading stuff, and you say, oh, this seems cool. I want to link to that, and I want to comment on it. Well, how nice if you could do that directly from your RSS reader just by clicking a button, and a window comes up, and you can start typing and send it off to your blog. I mean, that, that totally makes sense. What I didn't think of initially was, you know, that window where you can do the typing could be another app. It doesn't have to actually be in that newswire. So 
once I figured that out, then I realized, well, it's time to make it a different app. What was it then that made you figure it out? Why did you decide to, to split the two apps apart? A part of it just, it felt like Net, NetNewsWire 1.0 wasn't focused enough on being an RSS reader because it had that additional component. And there were a lot of features that 1.0 didn't have, simple, obvious stuff like you couldn't flag an item uh, to save it for later. Uh, it didn't have any kind of like smart feeds feature, or any of those uh, advanced productivity-oriented features that you would hope an RSS reader would have. And it was kind of hard to... The project just felt like it was getting really big as I, as I was adding those features and still, you know, with a blog editor inside of there. Uh, it was just making it tough. Running out of menu bar space, that kind of thing. Running out of mental space, really. Um, so I just realized, you know, these can be two separate apps and I can just use an Apple event to go from one to the other. And, and once I did that, it, all the pieces fell into place. So did working on Manila help you out with the basic sort of understanding and learning for building a, a blog editing platform or system app? Hmm. Well, let's see. When, when I was working on Manila, uh, we also developed very early APIs for, for allowing external editing. So I had actually written a, a blog editor prior to NetNewsWire, prior to MarsEdit. Um, you know, just very basic stuff. But I knew those APIs very well because I helped helped work on them initially. Um, so, yeah, that certainly helped. And I also, with Manila, I had the attitude, uh, and I'm sure this came from Dave Weiner, that blogging should be about as easy as writing an email, where you just sit down and type in your own voice whatever it is you want to write about, whatever you're thinking of. And so ideally the UI is similar to an email app and, and just about as non-intimidating. That's what I set out to do with Mars Edit. As time went on and more and more blogging platforms and systems emerged, how did the development of Mars Edit change? Let's see, I worked on that from 2004, I think, to maybe 2007. Uh, and in that period of time, I think movable type was really the big system initially, and then that really switched to WordPress. And I can't remember how that affect Mars Mars edit. I think there might have been something about custom fields or something, and I I just didn't do it. Instead, then we sold the app to Daniel Jowkett, and he could answer that question better because he's had it for much longer than I did. Why did you want to sell the app? Uh, I couldn't. I just couldn't keep up. I couldn't do a great job with NetNewsWire and MarsEdit both. It was just too much work for one person. And how did you and Daniel come together over the sale of the app? Like, how did you meet and work this out as a logical thing to do? Well, let's see. I knew Daniel online and uh, then met him in person like once, twice, three times, not, not sure, at various conferences, like in Chicago and San Francisco. And... Um, and I knew him to be a big Mars Edit fan. I think he even had like a edited with Mars Edit button on his on his blog or something. And um, he really, it was obvious that he really, really liked it. And he was um, an indie developer with, I think he had a crossword puzzle app, um, fast scripts maybe, but no like, you know, big productivity app that would, uh, that would help him do really, really well as a developer. So it seemed like he... He had a missing piece to his portfolio, and there was this app that he really loved. Well, why not make that the thing? I think I talked it over with Paul Kafasis a bit uh, beforehand, and Paul gave me good advice, which was, yeah, sell it to Daniel, <laughs> which, which is great. That's what I did. Yeah. As far as we know, that was the best advice. Yeah, absolutely right. Yep. Now, I still have a bunch of stuff that I want to talk to you about, but just before we do that, i just got to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, for this week's episode of Command Space, and that is Squarespace. They are the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and use the offer code NEARLY100, that's N-E-A-R-L-Y-100 at checkout. A better web starts with your website. 
I love Squarespace. I've been using them personally for years. I have my own blog there, mikehurley.net, and I hosted my own podcast network there many moons ago. Um, the, the site that I used to run, 70 Decibels, before I joined 5 by 5 was run on Squarespace. So I know of which I speak. Squarespace is super easy to use. It's really simple. I love the way that you can create pages in Squarespace. Everything is drag and drop. So I'm a person that doesn't really understand how to code a website from scratch, but with Squarespace, I don't need to know any of that. I have the comfort in knowing that I can go in and make a page look how I want because I just drag and drop things around the page. I can change colors, fonts, and all of these incredible tools are really powerful and they're right at my fingertips. All Squarespace sites look absolutely fantastic because they have really beautiful designs, really beautiful templates that all feature responsive web design built right in. So your site's going to look fantastic on any device. They have 24-7 support through live chat and email and they have uh, people on the support team located in New York City and in Dublin. Squarespace plans start at just $8 a month and they include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. That's just an, an example of how Squarespace really does give you the full package. Another part being their commerce platform, Squarespace Commerce, which is an online store which you can add to any Squarespace website. It's all built right in. So you can sell physical goods, digital goods. Maybe you want to uh, sell something that people can download, maybe like an ebook or an album or something like that. Well, you can do all of that and it will provide people with download codes by email. Or maybe you want to ship physical goods where you can manage all of your inventory in Squarespace Commerce and you can print shipping information, all of that fun stuff. You can start a free trial with Squarespace with absolutely no credit card required and you can start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure that you use the offer code NEARLY100, that's NEARLY100, to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for Command Space. So thanks so much to Squarespace for, Squarespace for supporting 5x5 and Command Space. With Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. So later on, uh, Glassboard came about mm -hmm. what was your involvement in the creation of glassboard because i'm right in thinking this this of all of the apps that we've spoken about this wasn't just your app right this was really a team app so let's see there were so i went to work at newsgator in 2005 and they called themselves the rss company at that time well times changed things changed and they became a enterprise social networking sharepoint company instead Really nothing to do as with RSS. Do, as these yeah, things right. tend to unravel. Yeah. Oh, always happens that way, right? <laughs> uh, and it's a great business. They're, they're doing really, really well. I, you know, I can't provide details. And I don't remember them. But I remember things like, wow, we've you know, broken projections for eight quarters in a row. So everybody gets a free Amazon Kindle. I mean, stuff like that happened. Yeah, yeah it was good business. But, you know, the, so there was a consumer side of the company that just kept dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. And we were down to six people. And it was like, well, we either have to justify your existence or get out. So uh, let's come up with an app. Let's do something. And so we talked about it. We thought it would be nice to split out into a separate company. So that's how the company CP Labs was created. And we came up with Glassboard as our idea. Now, Glassboard was conceptually related to what the company as a whole did because, you know, it's uh, social networking for groups, basically. But instead of being enterprise-focused, it was consumer-focused, small business-focused. So it's Sepia Labs owned by Newsgator? S yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it, it actually existed as a company, but technically it had no employees. We were all employed by and paid by Newsgator. And if, if all the paperwork and everything had ever been finalized, I'm not sure if it was, uh, we each would have had some percentage of ownership of CPA Labs, uh, but Newsgator would still have been the majority owner since they provided the people and the and you know all that stuff, resources and everything. Thinking about some of the apps that you've made and looking at the types of places that they they fall in, do you make apps that kind of scratch itches of yours? Like, what spurs you on to create a certain application? Oh, absolutely, I do. Um, uh, as much as I love programming and writing software, my, my biggest love has been, since I was little and still is, is reading and writing. And so all of my apps have something to do with that somehow. Uh, with that news on Mars Edit, it's obvious. But uh, with Vesper, for instance, you know, taking notes is, you know, it's reading. It's something, um, it's something writers do, something readers do. And Glassboard is the same thing. It's, you know, 
it's not uh, literary writing, but it's, you know, writing to other people, describing things, whatever, talking things over. So everything I do is, is highly verbal. I'll put it that way. I would never write an image editor I, as much as I, uh, I think some of the challenges would be fun. I would never, ever, you know, do something like that. It, I would never write a casual game. I just don't care enough. Uh, everything, all the software I write has words in it, something to do with words. Are the apps that you make because you think that the current creators of these types of applications are doing something wrong or they're frustrating, or is it because you see something that nobody else is doing in that space? I don't usually think about the category that much. Uh, with, with Manila... Um, you know, we wanted to do a blogging system and, and really it was a full-blown CMS, um, you know, with our own vision. And it was very different from Blogger, but we weren't saying that, you know, Blogger was doing it wrong. It was just a different thing. Uh, with NetNewsWire, there, there were no native RSS readers. And yeah, I didn't like the way Radio Userland's RSS thing worked, but I wasn't creating it as, as a reaction to that. It was more that, well, I know what I want. And so I just started making the thing that I wanted. And I think that's, that's true every time, even, even with Vesper now, it's not like, oh, well, you know, all these other note-taking apps uh, are wrong or bad or something. No, they're all just different. I wanted to make the one that, that I want. And, you know, the, the category could be super crowded or it could be empty, and I'd still end up making the same thing. So Glassboard was, was also sold, um, and now uh, it is owned by Second Gear, right? Yep, Justin Williams, yeah. So I think that there's a clear like history or thread that projects that you've worked on, you've either sold or have been they have been sold. Um, do you think there's a reason for this specifically, or is it just how the chips have fallen? Well, let's see. So if you if you have a long history, either your apps are going to die or they're going to get sold because it's rare that you're going to work on something forever. You know, working on Net Newswire on one thing for nine years is is very very long time. Um, I can't name too many other developers who have spent that amount of time on a, on a single product. Now, if you work at a company like um, Omni or Black Pixel or something, you may work on one product for six months or a year or two, and then maybe work on some other product or some other uh, on something else. So you could kind of be working in that area for a long time, but. You're not going to just be on this same app every single day. So nine years is a, is a long time. Um, and so I think where I've been lucky is that the products have been good enough, interesting enough, so that other people wanted to acquire them. Uh, if, if you go look at the history of many other developers, you'll find that you know, they just had to drop their apps. They, they, weren't, um, they weren't selling enough and they weren't interesting to anybody else, so they're just gone. So my history of selling things is um, something I can look at uh, proudly and say, you know, I made things uh, of enduring value, things that live on uh, with other people as, as their stewards now. Are you happier about this than, than having a list of applications that lasted maybe for three or four years longer, but kind of withered away? Uh, yeah, I, yeah no, nothing is withered away under my care. <laughs> and I'm sure. really glad about that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm super glad. I've never had to like, you know, kill an app except for, you know, those things I mentioned in the early nineties that nobody bought or mid nineties that nobody bought anyway. <laughs> and I can't even name all those apps anymore. But since then, yeah, everything is, everything I've, I've created has lasted. When you make newer things now, does this cross your mind at all? Like, what what is the future of this application? Like, is there a chance it could get bought one day, or does, does that ever come across your mind at all? Uh, it comes across my mind in the sense that, well, before I had ever sold any apps, I would code as if I was the only person who would ever possibly see that code. Uh, now I don't work that way because I know <laughs> it's quite possible somebody else could see that code, even if it's just a contract, or maybe we hire somebody at some point. Uh, but there's going to be other eyeballs on the code. And that, 
that changes for the better how I write code. But otherwise, I don't think to myself, oh, I bet we'll sell Vesper one day. Because I don't plan to. My plan right now is to uh, stick with uh, uh, John and Dave and do apps until the day I retire. And hopefully that means Vesper lasts that entire length of time. So what you say about writing code in a specific way, is that to save on embarrassment of somebody else seeing it? Is it to save work for yourself later because in those scenarios you have to go back and fix things? Or is it simply just to make it easier for the person if they were ever to take on the code? Uh, it's mainly to make it easier for the other person. Uh, I'm not too worried about being embarrassed. Uh, maybe I should be, but I... Not that I'm saying your code's yeah. bad in any way, of course. Right, no, no. But, you know, but, you know even a good coder can write stuff that if someone else sees... Um, they might go, geez, what the hell is that? Yeah, because everyone has uh, their own way of doing things, right? Yeah, ex exactly right. Yeah, I, I, I find that it makes the code better if I have that in mind uh, because I, I make sure it's clear. How did Vesper come your way? Oh, let's see. I, I had become uh, unhappy at NewsGator because it, you know, we were working on Glassboard and I loved my team and I, I loved the software. Um, but circumstances conspired against us a bit. Um, what I ended up doing for the last few months that I was there, I don't remember, four months or so, was uh, doing graphic design for their enterprise app. Now, in all my time there, I had avoided everything enterprise entirely. I worked on consumer apps only. Um, but I found myself living in Photoshop all day, every day, and doing mock-ups and everything, and and it's not that I don't like that, but it, number one, it was for a product I didn't care about. And uh, number two, I do actually like programming better, as, as much as fun as design is. And to be kept away from it for so long just really, really didn't feel good. So I thought to myself, you know, I'm, I was, what, 44, 45 at the time. And I thought, you know, I will keep getting better as a programmer and a product guy, but not for that much longer. Uh, you know, I have another, you know, 10 great years in me. So if I'm approaching the, the prime of my career, if I'm going to start hitting my peak pretty soon, I better be doing the work that I was born to do, the work I really, really love to do. So uh, I realized, yeah, it's time to get out, time to leave NewsGator and go indie again. So as, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, well, it'd be fun to work with some other people. Um, in a lot of ways, the stakes are higher than they were 10 years ago. 10 years ago, a guy like me could design Net Newswire, get a designer to do some toolbar icons and an app icon, and ship it, and the entire world will talk about what a beautiful, wonderful app. Um, but the design uh, quality expectations are way higher now, uh, especially after you know the iPhone and iPad introductions. And so it would have been harder for just me. So you know, and I had also found that. I enjoyed working with the team. So I talked to Dave and John about working together. And uh, I was so glad when they both thought, you know what, this sounds like a great idea. And um, Dave already had an app. He had done some mock-ups on, and it was based on an idea that John had told him about, I can't remember, a year or so previously. And you know, the app had to do with words, so I was on board. <laughs> yeah, that's your, that's your thing, right? That's exactly right, yeah. So I, I was there, and we just took it from there. So you, why did you approach these guys? Did you know that they were working on something, or were they working on something before you got on board, or were they just the, the fit and it was all just magically came together? Um, I, I approached them because they're friends. Um, yeah, mainly because they're friends of mine and friends of each other. And it, it seemed to me... There's a magic, there's a magic trio, a power trio, right? Where you have uh, Michael Optimus talked about this, where you have designer, dictator, and developer. And I wanted to be the developer, and I knew Dave would make a great designer, and John, well, he'd make a great dictator. Uh, so that was that was the three of us. So I did, felt like it would work, and it totally does. So did the idea to work together come first, and then the app later? Yeah, the idea to work together came first, yeah. How were you sort of working on any ideas together before Vesper became the natural thing? No, that came up right away. Uh, as soon as I brought it up 
uh, Dave says, oh, he had on his iPhone some mock-ups even he'd already made. And he's like, oh, here's the thing. This is what, this is what we should do. Because he was working with Justin Williams on that, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the time. Do you work full-time for QBranch, which is the name, the company that you set up together? Oh, yeah. Uh, the only, Well, so I also have a podcast and I also have a blog. And those are both, you know, products that I spend time on. But otherwise, yeah, I'm just I'm working for QBranch. And what is it like to work with John and Dave on a daily basis? Do you have daily communication? Yeah, we use Glassboard, actually, uh, for almost all of our company communication. Email's pretty rare. We see each other about three or four times a year. Uh, John and Dave do a fair amount of back and forth over instant message when they're just you know looking at comps. Dave's revising. John's critiquing. I don't need to be involved kind of in the, the early stages of things. Um, and it's great. No, nobody has like a, you know, you, you don't see Dave insisting that he's right about things. And John doesn't do that. And I don't do that. Instead, you know, we save our, um, we want to ship a great product. And that's way more important to our ego than, you know, being right about any particular random decision. So, you know, internally, it's, you know, a bunch of egoless smart people who really want to make great stuff and that's that's a that's how it should be right and it's wonderful to work in in the that kind of situation how often do you agree on things well eventually we always we always do everything becomes uh everything gets agreed on uh but we frequently don't agree uh at the outset and then we just talk it over until we all agree do you think that conflict, if you'd call it conflict, helps you work on great stuff together? I think having more than one perspective is is really important. Um, be, because there were things that I know that if it was just me doing doing the design, I would have just plain missed. I, I would have you know not seen that that was the wrong way or not realized that there was a better way. Uh, so having three of us thinking about things all the time um, really absolutely makes for better software. What do you see as the future of the the Vespa project? I know that you're working on Sync uh, quite openly in your blog right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that this is going to allow for Vespa to become cross-platform in the future maybe? Well, certainly having having Syncing um, would allow for things like uh, iPad, Mac, Web, Android, Windows Mobile, heck, even a Windows app. Now, who knows what we'll actually build? Uh, that's that's not something we're talking about. But having syncing does allow for all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Why do you blog so openly about the about not just development, but in in specifics your syncing problems that you're having or successes? Well, for a few different reasons. One is I've I've learned over the years that it's easier for me to write a system if I really think it through first, just imagining that I know, know what I'm doing and starting to write code is never a good idea. Instead, I really should actually write it up. That's how I, I think best when I'm writing. And so I realized since we had made, um, the fact that we're doing syncing, we had made that public. I could just write about this on my blog, you know, why not press publish? You know, it doesn't have to be just for me, these write-ups. Uh, and then I found very quickly that, uh, people had a lot of really, really good feedback and it certainly has, has changed my mind on things or, you know, made, made me found better, find better ways of doing things. So the feedback has been really fantastic. I really enjoyed it. It, you know, in the end, it'll make for a better product thanks to, you know, all the people who've helped out in, in, uh, with the, with the feedback. You very openly, um, use, uh, Windows Azure, um, for Azure, Azure, Azure. 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 Yeah. Azure. Uh, you use Windows Azure for right. uh, your so if, if, a, if a Microsoft person were here, they'd say, no, no, it's oh. Microsoft Azure. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Microsoft <laughs> See, uh, they must hate that. It's my, yeah. I think we just assumed everything is called Windows. Right, sure, of course. Um, you use it's Microsoft. Even, it's Windows, Windows, even. <laughs> <laughs> what made you turn to Microsoft for your syncing solution? Well, I, I hadn't done backend work in a long time. Uh, I used to do a lot, right? You know, Manila was a was a web service uh, website, 
Um, but it had been a lot of years. And I'd you know, read about things like Node and Ruby on Rails. And so I, I was aware of what existed and had vague ideas of how it worked. But I hadn't actually done any server-side programming in a long time. Then um, you know, I, I saw mobile services. And, and it's like Node plus some extra you know, training wheels and safety and everything. A really gentle, nice, easy way to get started. And that appealed to me. That appealed to me a lot because, um, you know, there was just so much that was new to me. And I was worried a little bit, though, that, you know, I'd be locked into like some kindergarten version of, of web services. But it turns out that's not, not true at all. It's also deep and it works with other Azure services and stuff. So I'm not, you know, locked into something I, that won't grow with my needs. Um, so, when, yeah, when I saw that, I'm like, yep. Yeah, this is this is the right way to go. Recently, you were in a promotional video for Azure that formed part of the Build Conference. How did this opportunity come up? Well, let's see. Uh, when I, I first saw mobile services, it was because uh, Josh Twist, who I don't know what his title was, he was working there, uh, came out to my neighborhood and met me for coffee and wanted to show this thing to me. Um, and, and I was impressed. And anyway, we... I'd kept in touch with Josh and um, with Miranda Luna, a coworker of his. And, you know, they would say, hey, how's it going? And I'd say, well, we're doing this. And I'd give them feature requests or ask for help or whatever. So we had a relationship going. And it ended up that they thought it would be cool to uh, show off Vesper during their keynote. And we're like, yeah, cool. And they offered to fly us down and all that stuff. So, yeah, we were into it. How did you think people would react to you and John doing promotion for Microsoft? That's a good question. <laughs> so, so you know, one big worry is that, oh, my God, we're doing something for Microsoft. Would, would the entire world just freak out? Um, uh, and also, would people at Apple, maybe, who, you know, we'd like to be on Apple's good side, obviously, yeah. would they be upset for any reason? Well, we haven't heard, you know, a word about anyone being actually truly upset about that. You know, the thing is we're using a thing that uh, Apple doesn't have um, a competing service. You know, it's not like we chose this over something Apple g- gives us. Yeah. There just is, there isn't anything. And Apple is actually a big user of Microsoft Azure themselves. Um, so, you know, uh, no, nobody seemed to be upset. And, and frankly, you know, us, us, Apple partisans have often said over the years that, look, we use you know Macs and iOS, whatever, because the technology is better. You show me something, show me great technology that beats the other technology, and I'd use that. And I'm using Macs and iOS and everything for that reason. Well, in this case, we saw great technology coming from Microsoft, and if we're going to be honest, great technology is great technology, and we'll use it. Doesn't matter where it comes from. What was the the reaction that you saw, like, I don't know, on Twitter and stuff like that? How were people reacting to the video? Uh, a little bit of surprise, uh, <laughs> you know, a little, I, I think just like kind of like lightweight, like, oh, this is kind of funny. Can you believe this? This guy's, you know, it's like Nixon going to China. These guys are at, at Microsoft. Um, and, you know, I didn't see all of, John's replies, it's quite likely that there were a few bits of snark in there. Uh, luckily, I'm not nearly as, as well-known or as polarizing as John can be. So uh, the feedback that was directed at me was you know, all e- either nice or funny or mild or whatever. What do you see as the future for QBranch? Do you think that you guys are going to be working on different apps other than Vesper in the future? That's a good question. Um, you know, we're very focused on on shipping what we need to ship right now. And it, it's easy to imagine a future where we have uh, additional apps. Uh, perhaps in that future, future, we also have employees or, you know, contractors or something. But it's also easy enough to imagine, you know, that, hey, we're the company that makes Vesper. And Vesper does super well. And it's, you know, the greatest note-taking app ever. Everybody loves it. And, um and we just take care of our customers, and, and that's that. So I don't know. You know, We'll just kind of see what happens. So you mentioned, we already mentioned you, you had a blog. 
that you have a blog, sorry, called Inessential. But you also have a podcast, which we briefly touched on. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, the Record. It's at therecord.co, as in the record company. Hmm. I love that. Uh, it's it, it came out of my desire, uh, going back a few years, to really want to document the uh, the Mac and iOS development community. It seems to me like we're in a situation that's you know kind of similar to, say, the early days of television or the early days of the Seattle music scene. And what always happens in those situations is that people don't realize they're, that they're part of something that's special, that people will want to learn about uh, later on and look back on. And so all this stuff ends up being lost. You know, all the stories are you know, forgotten or, or the, the people are... are you know, people have died, um, you know, the materials are gone, whatever the, um, you know, stuff is just, is just gone. So I thought, well, I think I recognize that we're living through something special and Hey, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Uh, but if I'm right, then great. I can get all this stuff recorded right now. Uh, why don't I, you know, start talking to people, uh, get all their stories down. And so, you know, I thought about that for a while and, uh, Ended up talking to my friend Chris Parrish, who is local to me. He lives on Bainbridge Island, right outside Seattle, and um, he agreed to be my co-host. And he does all the hard work of editing and all that technical stuff too. And uh, yeah, ended up being great. I've been so pleased with the reaction to our first season. You do something quite interesting that I've, I don't recall seeing anywhere else. You reco- recorded all of your interviews in person uh, about nearly a year ago. Mm-hmm. and you've now edited them and put them into the world. So one, why did you want to do them all in person? And two, why why this amount of time between recording and releasing? Well, I felt like doing them in, in person would uh, make for the best possible interviews because when you can actually see each other and see you know facial expressions and all that kind of stuff, and, and when you're not you know overwhelmed by the technology, when really it's, you know, uh, three people sitting around a table. I think you end up with something a little more natural, and, and I hope that comes across. I hope that brings the the personalities of the guests uh, a little makes makes those personalities a little more vivid. So that's why we wanted to do that. Uh, but why did it take so long? It just it just took so long. But we figured, <laughs> you know, it's not like you know we're not talking about the latest news or something. No. Right? These these interviews will still be interesting. Hopefully, five, ten, twenty years from now. So. Mrs. Simmons, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Oh, you too. Where can people uh, catch up with you online and stay in touch with what you're up to? Well, you can go to inessential.com for my blog. And from there, there's a link to my Twitter thing and my podcast thing and my app and all that kind of stuff. If you want to find links to all of the stuff that we've spoken about today, they are in the show notes, which are at 5x5.tv slash cmdspace slash 94. Uh, my name is Mike Hurley. I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Command Space. And thank you to Brent for joining me today. Um, Thanks. And until next time, bye-bye.